His name was Randy. And Randy came with a warning. About a year ago, my parents decided they were going to put an addition on their house. And Randy was their general contractor. Randy was hired to tear down walls, take down outside walls, take off portions of the roof, add a new addition, put on a new roof line, completely gut the kitchen, redo the whole thing, add a bathroom, take out the garage, and and redo several things. A big project was underway, and Randy said, I can do it. In fact, I know I can do it. And for so much money, I will do it. But I have a warning. I love the design phase. And I love tearing down walls. I think that sounds like fun too. I love tearing down walls. I love getting in and and figuring out roof line. I love the design aspect. I I love watching it take shape. I'm going to be right there all the time. I'll do most of the work myself and just a couple others. But he said, I'm going to be right there and we're going to watch this thing form and take shape. And I'm going to be right in the middle of it every day given everything I've got. And I'm going to watch it as the walls go up, as the studs take shape, as the electricity goes in, the wires are run. I'm going to watch the plumbing be put in. I'm going to watch the sheetrock go up and the paint get splattered on the walls. But here's my warning. When it gets down to the tedious, you're probably going to have to call me because my mind is going to be moving on. I'm going to be on to the next project. When all of that big stuff takes shape and all that big stuff is, is completed, I find myself, my tendency is, Randy says, to move on. My tendency is to go on down the road. And the warning proved true. They were on him. Randy, come on. There's some touch-up. Randy, come on. There's got, there's got to be a few things you've got to finish. We're not quite done yet. Come on, Randy. Get back here and finish this up. Wonderful guy. I met him a few times when we were back. And he finished the work and everything is good. But I'd say that's a tendency that we have as human beings. And maybe not all of us to that extreme or maybe not quite the same. But I think a lot of us uh, find ourselves, when the, when the big stuff needs to get done, we can be right in the middle. When there's a project that needs to be completed, we can get in the middle of that and we can devote our attention to it and we're excited about it. But sometimes when it gets to the tedious... We run out of gas. We run out of gas. And that's why I look at John chapter 13 in light of what is normal. In light of how I find myself to be. And maybe you do too. And maybe you don't. But, but I find Jesus here at the end. Right at the end. He's done all the big stuff. He's been engaged in everything. He's been with His apostles. He's performed the miracles. He's taught all that He can teach. He has entered the city of Jerusalem on on the Lord's Day uh, a week prior. And now He finds Himself right at the cusp. It's, it's, It's the night before He goes to the cross. And He never ran out of gas. He never ran out of gas. You know about John chapter 13, right? You know what Jesus is about to do. As was just read for us a moment ago in verse number 4, Jesus is going to get up from the table, He's going to gird that towel around His waist, and He's going to do what? He's going to bend down and He's going to wash dirty men's feet. Men's dirty feet. Yuck. But they weren't just any men, and you know this. They weren't just any men. 
They were men that were going to run. And men that were going to deny. And men that were going to betray. And John makes it a point, now looking back on the event as he is writing this gospel account, he makes it a point to say, he loved us. In fact, he loved us how long? To the end. You see it? He loved us to the end. John is able to look back and say, he never gave up on us. He never ran out of gas. He loved us all the way to the end. He served. His was a life of service. And we could spend all day and all night and all day tomorrow and all day the next day talking about all the ways that Jesus served while He lived. But there are several, again, that we can mention specifically. How did Jesus serve? Well, here's just a highlight, a very brief glimpse of who He was. It begins all the way in John chapter 2. You remember in John chapter 2, Jesus is going to say, Woman, mother, respectfully, my hour has not yet come. John chapter 13, he knew his hour had come. But when he, when he was just beginning, Jack, in John chapter 2, he attended a wedding feast. Do you ever attend a wedding feast to serve? Generally, it's not what we're about, is it, right? We're there to attend. We're there to be served. But Jesus ended up serving at a wedding feast. And we find so many times associating with the outcast. Eating with sinners and tax collectors in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, and then giving three wonderful parables. We will find him in Matthew chapter 14, feeding 5,000 people upon which he had compassion. In chapter 15, he would feed 4,000. Chapter 14, 5, 15, uh, 4,000. In Mark chapter 5, he visits homes of those who need him, like the home of Jairus, whose daughter was sick. And so he went into his home and he healed his daughter He healed those who were sick. He comforted those who were bereaved in John chapter 11 at the death of Lazarus. And Mary and Martha and a whole multitude around them are are grieving. Jesus will serve and He will help them through. He taught publicly and was willing to pray for people. And John would look back and he would say, He loved us all the way to the very end. You say that's a wonderful thing, right? That Jesus would be such a servant, that he would give himself to serve. And we think about those words in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 where Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. But brethren and friends, that takes on a whole new meaning when you look at him not as a servant, but as a king, as royalty. And royalty says, I came not to be served, but to serve. That doesn't happen, does it? That's not generally what's going to happen. Kings are not going to be servants. And so it makes it to a whole different level when you think of Jesus as a servant and then turn around and think of Jesus as royalty, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he wouldn't deny it. You remember the conversation with Pilate in John chapter 18 where Jesus is before Pilate and Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yeah, I'll tell you something about my kingdom. In verse number 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. But my my kingdom is not of this world. And then he answers the question, verse number 37, very plainly and bluntly. You say rightly, I am a king. A leader who defines service. What are we talking about? This congregation 
is in the midst of appointing men to deacon, to be a deacon. And so what does Jesus have to do with deacons? What does looking at Jesus as a servant, as a king, what does that have to do with deacons? And the answer is everything. It has everything to do with this. And that's why I want to discuss it. This morning we're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we're going to run through some qualifications. But I want to set the tone by looking at the ultimate example of service and that is Jesus. And before you're a man who doesn't meet these qualifications or a woman who who doesn't meet these qualifications, before you turn me off, turn it back on please. Because what we're looking at this morning, brethren and friends, is exactly what the Lord needs from all of us. Jesus is the example of service. He defines it for us in the way that He lived. A king willing to serve and not be served. And He says, I want you to see what I'm talking about. I'm going to set the tone. I'm going to give you the example. And now as He establishes the church and the organization of the church, we find elders who are looking to the head, Christ, and deacons who are looking to the head, Christ, under the oversight of an eldership. And we find their qualifications beginning in verse number 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, and not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things." Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and a great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. I would remind us that these are qualifications that we as Christians really need to be striving to meet. I want to go through it this way. These are words, my words. And you might have your words and you can change it and make it yours. That's okay with me. But as we go through these, and we'll do so fairly briefly, I want you to give very serious thought to the man that we're talking about who's going to serve the church in this capacity. I said, serve the church. He's going to be a man of dignity. Maybe your translation there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 8, actually uses the word dignified. Many do. New King James will use the word reverent. But what we're talking about is a man of dignity. A man who is dignified. He is serious. Now, Troy, this is not a man without a sense of humor. Right? We can have a sense of humor. This doesn't mean that he's stoic and rigid and stands up straight and walks like this all the time. All right? We're not dealing with that. But what he is, is when it comes to service, he's all in. He is serious about it. I will serve the church. I will serve. I don't care who it is or how it is. I will do it. I'm serious about it. Dignified. I'm serious. We're talking about a high-principled, high-character individual. Somebody with high standards. Again, somebody who is striving to be this way. And I will say this more than once. I think this qualification certainly applies to a mature Christian. Not a novice. Somebody who is reverent, high-principled, high-character, a serious student. Somebody who is mature. What's number two say in your Bible? 
He is reverent. He's dignified. He is not double-tongued. Something along that line? This is a man of integrity, dignity, integrity. He is not going to say one thing in one context and turn around and contradict it in another context. He is going to be the same wherever he is. He is going to be free from hypocrisy. He is going to be one that the elders can look at and say, do it, and they know he will because they can trust him. This is the man we're looking for to serve in this capacity. But I would ask you as a whole, which of those two do you not want to be as a Christian? Which of those two do you not want to be? You see, this is what we're looking for. This is the standard that this man must meet. He has to come here. But brethren, this is what we're all as Christians pushing ourselves to be. I want to be trustworthy. I don't want to be double-tongued. What's your say next? Not given to much wine. You saw it pop up there. I'll put it back. You want to camp out here? Many do. You want to camp out. I want to camp out because of one word. The word what? Much. You want to camp out and you want to talk about the word much. Well, you see the qualifications for elders. They say he's not given to wine. And then you get down to deacons and it says he's not given to much wine. Therefore, the elder, he can't be a partaker of alcoholic beverage at all. But the deacon, maybe he can. And maybe that means I can as a Christian. Shake your head like this. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. This is not a sermon on beverage alcohol. I will keep this within context, but listen to me. This is not your verse. All right, You don't have one, but this is not it. If this is the one you're trying to use. Beverage alcohol is against God. I had a great evening last evening, even though the score was dismal for a Jayhawk fan. Brother Terry took the boys and I to a ball game. And they've started selling alcohol on the campus of Texas Tech. I don't know why, but I can tell you that this is the third year that we've been privileged to go to that game. And this year, yes, the score was awful for a Jayhawk fan, but the experience changed. Alcohol was involved. And I was wearing blue, and I know the environment that I put myself in, okay, I get it. But... But those guys behind me, they were different than they would have been a couple of years ago, I really feel. There was something different about them. Their breath was terrible, I'll tell you that. And their words were not good. They changed. Something about them changed. Were they drunk? No, the world would say no. Did they go staggering out? No, don't think they did. But there was something changed about them. Now listen to me. If you want to know what God has to say about beverage alcohol, just look at a couple of verses intoxicating drink. Look at Proverbs chapter 20 and verse number 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. How about that? How about the questions of Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 and following? Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has uh, complaints? Who has wounds without a cause? Who has redness of the eye? Those who go in search of mixed wine. Any of that sound like something you want? None of it. 
Brethren, God could not be more against beverage alcohol than He is. And we need to stand against it. Again, this, this one who is going to be this way is going to be striving for purity. One who is going to serve the church in this capacity is going to strive for purity. You want one more? How about Galatians 5? Adam, how about the New Testament? How about this? Galatians 5 in verse 21, where a work of the flesh is drunkenness. And Paul not only condemns the end result of drunkenness, but in that word condemns the entire process of getting there. It doesn't belong in a Christian. It doesn't belong in God's person. Whether it's a beer with a pizza, whether it's a beer out at the restaurant, whether it's a beer when you get home after a long day, it doesn't belong in a Christian. We're striving for purity. And it certainly can't have a place in the life of this man, the man who's going to be God's person. Because, you see, he is interested in influence. He is a servant who is going to provide influence that others can follow. Okay? And so that's what we're dealing with. He is not given to wine. He's striving for purity. I ask you again, which of these these three things as a Christian are you not striving for yourself as a Christian? Isn't this the bar that we're all striving for? Has to be. What's your say next? Therefore, in verse number 8, the last one is, New King James says, not greedy for money. What's your word? How about priority? He's got his priorities right. Okay, he's got his priorities right. In Mark chapter 12 and verse number 40, you could look at Matthew or you could look at Luke, but Mark chapter 12 and verse 40 is that point where Jesus condemns the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees in particular, for devouring widows' houses. We've looked at this before, but you know, they were buttering up next to a widow who had no one else to give their things to uh, for the sake of when that widow dies, she'll give me her stuff. All right? So I'm going to butter myself up. I'm going to get real close to her. I'm going to hold her real tight. I'm going to take care of her needs so that when she dies, she'll give me all of her stuff. What's my motivation? Me. I just want her stuff. I really don't care about her. I really don't care about the situation she finds herself in. I just think she has nice things and I'd like to have them when she dies. Greedy for money. I suppose there have been men who have served in the role of deacon along the way, who have tried to take care of the widows, the old, the aged, or those who find themselves in troubled times. And I suppose there have been those men who have tried to do exactly that. I will befriend so-and-so so that I can maybe get in the will. So that maybe I can get some of that stuff when they go. And so I'm going to be as nice and as kind as I can. But at the end of the day, I'm really not interested in service. I'm interested in self-me. Not God's man. Not the man who's going to serve in this capacity. He has got his priorities right. He is not greedy for money. You see, he's serious about being a servant. He is going to be honest and trustworthy. And so even if the elders decide that this man is going to be in charge of the funds, they can trust him with that. And they understand that those are going to be used wisely because he has priorities. He's going to carry himself in a pure way. And then you get to verse number 9. The Bible says, This is a man who holds the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Now we're talking about his spiritual life as a whole. 
All right, now we're building components into who this man is and how he carries himself and what kind of service he is going to provide. But God says, I'm very interested in his spiritual life. Who is he? Remember in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, Paul calls out those who are spiritual. You who are spiritual. Who are the spiritual? Well, here I think it's defined for us this way in verse number 9. Spiritual are those who hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Now what are we talking about? Well, if you go over just down a few verses to verse number 16, Paul says, I'll define for you this mystery of godliness. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles or the nations, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. What are we dealing with? What we're dealing with is the whole of the scheme of redemption. God understood that man was condemned, lost in his sins, and provided a way of escape, provided a way for man to be saved, even the giving of his only son. The servant, God's man, knows what God has done for him. He knows the price that's been paid for his salvation. And he is willing to hold on to that with everything he has. He has a firm grasp on the gospel, on what God has done to save him. Now, brethren, I'm asking again, would, that not, would you not like that to be you? To God be looking at you? And what is your spirituality? Are you grasping a hold of the gospel? Do you have a, a grasp on the price that was paid for your salvation? With a pure conscience. I not only hear it, I do it. James chapter 1 and verse 22. I'm willing to stand and teach it. I'm willing to sit in the classroom of our young people and tell them about Jesus. I'm willing to go out and serve others and tell them about Jesus. And I'm willing for people to look at me and the life that I'm living and understand that I'm trying to live the gospel. Spiritual. You're spiritual. I'm not just going to tell you what it says. I'm going to try to provide you an example that you can follow. Now, I want to look at one more before we take a pause. And in your Bible, do you see these words in verse number 10 or something like them? But let these also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. What's your word? How about the word reliability? Perhaps you thought like I did, I would use the word durability. I think that also would apply. But the word that Paul uses here for tested is the same word that would be used for testing metal. I want to know how strong it is. I want to know if it's reliable. I want to know if I use that that piece of steel or that piece of metal, that it's going to hold up under pressure. And so Paul says, you take your man and you put him in a situation and you see if he holds up. You see if he's reliable. I think godly elders will pay attention to this very carefully because what godly elders will do is understand that not every man is cut from the same cloth. And they'll understand that there are different personalities and a man has different talents and different uh, capabilities. 
And what godly elders will do is understand that, that that's not going to be the best place for him to serve. Now, I'm not questioning whether or not he's sincere about his service. I'm not questioning his dignity. I'm not questioning his priorities or his purity. I'm just saying that's not where he's going to excel. He's not going to be reliable for me there. He's not his best place. And what they'll do is find his best place. But a godly deacon, he will prove himself to be reliable. He will prove himself to be what God needs him to be. I just wonder, brethren, are you reliable? Are you reliable? I mean, when you're put under pressure to stand there and take it, to stand there and be obedient, to stand there and remain close to God... Can he look at you as one who is reliable? You see, these are all things that we're striving to be. I'm telling you, when you get down to these first six, and you, there are only seven, and you look at these six qualifications, and you look at just six different ways of thinking about these qualifications, I'm telling you, these are things that all of us as Christians should really be pushing ourselves to be. What's the last one? Verse number 12 says, Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. Family. Family comes into play because family will tell on you. Family will tell on you. Family will tell others, Do you really get along? Do you really, are you really able to get along with others? Are you really capable of leading? Your wife will be uh, one who is able to answer that question, not even by talking, but just by observance. People can see, is he a leader? Your children, they may do, do this by some talking, maybe some screaming or some yelling or whatever else, but are they under control? Is he a leader? Is he capable of assuming these responsibilities? I, I would just say this. You can be a Christian and go to heaven without being married. And you can be a Christian and go to heaven without having children. But you can't be a deacon. This is a qualification. You have to have a family. Now, I've seen it in the past happen this way. Somebody walks up to somebody and says, hey, are you a man? Yep, check. Are you married? Check. Are you have a, have a baby? Yep, check. Be a deacon. Be a deacon. And all they'll look at is number seven. And they'll skip one through six. Because that's the tendency. Are you a good guy? Yeah, you're a good guy. All right, you generally show up for worship? Yeah, perfect. You meet the qualifications. You can be a deacon. When you dig a little deeper, what you find is, this is a very special individual. This is a very special man who's trying to live up to all of these things, and he is the complete package. Why would you want to be a deacon? Service? Really? It just doesn't sound that appealing to most. Serve? I, I really I don't think I want to do that. I, I mean, serve others? I just don't know if, if I'm cut out for that. I just don't think I want to do that. 
you obtain a good standing. Verse number 13. A good standing. Brethren and friends, this is a very important verse that often gets overlooked as we talk about these qualifications. The qualifications really stop at the end of verse number 12. That's really all the qualifications are. And so then it seems as if Paul, by inspiration, is asking, now why? Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to carry yourself and and serve in this particular capacity? Why why do you want to do that? Why do you want to have to spend maybe extra time away from home? Or why do you want to be engaged that, that closely to God's people in service to them? And so he gives the answer in verse number 13. Because you'll obtain for yourself a good standing. Those who serve well have a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. You're going to have a good standing before the congregation. You're going to be in good standing with the elders when you serve well. The the members of a congregation are going to see you and what you're doing. And as you engage yourself more in service to God, what you'll do is draw yourself closer to God. And that's what this is about. You'll obtain for yourself a good standing, serving well all the way to the very end. But I close with this question again. Shouldn't this be what we're all interested in? When you go home this afternoon and you find yourself in the part of your home with a mirror and you look at yourself in it, are you looking at a servant? Are you looking at one who takes pride in serving? I'm just suggesting as Christians, reminding us that if we're not serving, we've got to change it. This is who we are. I just wonder, if you look in that mirror, do you see dignity? Somebody who's serious about serving. As you look in that mirror, do you see a person of integrity? Do you see an honest individual? As you look in the mirror, do you see somebody who's striving for purity, to get all impurity out of your life and to be pure in the eyes of God as one of His children? As you look in that mirror, do you see somebody with their priorities right? Do you see a spiritual individual, somebody who is reliable to God? And to those who are married with families, I tell on you, They'll tell on you every time. Is it possible for my wife to be a disqualification? Yes. Wives, be serious in your service that your husband might be able to serve in this capacity. Children, can you disqualify your father from serving in this capacity? Yes, you can. And so you see, it's everybody involved. It's the whole family. We're all involved in this. And we all can serve together. I would ask this morning, as we consider this process of what we're going through, be serious about it. Be serious about the men we're looking for. It's not just one who's breathing in air, who happens to be married and have a a child or two. 
It's a specific individual who meets very specific qualifications. Now, this morning I close with the question, are you in good standing with God today? Are you in good standing with God? Does God look at you now as one of His, one who belongs to Him, one who has been willing to give up anything and everything to be right with Him? Are you in good standing? And if the answer this morning is no, then let's correct it, shall we? If you're a Christian this morning who's wandered away and you need to repent and come back, if you need the prayers of your brethren, let us pray with you, please. Let us help you in any way that we can. If you're not a Christian today, won't you become one? By simply doing what God says you must in order to be saved. Will you humble yourself this morning to become one of His? Believing Jesus to be the Son of God, a willingness to repent of sin in your life, to be uh, immersed in the waters of baptism, to have your sins washed away. You can rise and be one of His. Your sin's all gone. Won't you come? Be in good standing with God. All together we stand and sing.